Hey there, it's Mike Tramp, and you're listening to White Line Fever, where rock and roll is still alive like it always has been, and it always will be. Okay, welcome to White Line Fever, episode 70, and uh, our guest is a man, a blast from the distant past for me, uh, but also he's uh, got a lot going on at the moment, it's Craig Songrady um, from BB Steel, how are you Craig? Hey Steve, how are you doing? Good, it's been a while since we spoke on the record anyway, a long time. Yeah, yeah it has, it's been a long time, it's when, you know, dinosaurs ruled the earth, rock <laughs> dude. <laughs> when that, rock was God. <laughs> it actually makes it really easy to come up with a first question, which is, where have you been the last 25 years? <laughs> well, been around, I think, uh, had a bit of a hiatus. Um, what what happened is, in around about 94, when uh, Kurt Cobain came up with, you know, his uh, the grunge and the, the whole Seattle sound uh, came about, it was death instant death for us guys the hair farmers you know and the guys that want to play rock and um it, the record company looked at us like you know overnight like we're an old holden so we were like oh, okay uh, what do we do now so um i, I came back to adelaide because i'm originally from adelaide um i mean i left adelaide as a 17 year old to go to sydney way back and got you know the first deal with boss through warners and rca but I come back to Adelaide and you know, I was just I didn't know what to do. We we did a couple of shows here. Um that it, it was they were okay, but it wasn't like the old days, you know. There were kids out there now wanting to wear baggy pants, wear their cap backwards <laughs> and uh it was a whole new world and I was not going to stick on a pair of baggy pants and stick my uh, baseball cap backwards and try and be something that we weren't. So it was like uh I Basically, went and helped uh, my brother-in-law build houses for about, I think it was about, uh, oh, about uh, two, three years. And then I got a phone call from John Brommel, who was the managing director from Warner Brothers. He was like my um, mentor. He was like my second dad, that guy. Anyway, he said, Craig, look, rock's kind of coming back in a way. And I think you should think about doing another album, but don't make it too heavy because... And I listened to him, but uh, don't make it too heavy. Just make it you, trying to evolve and and uh, make it rock. And I said, you know what, John, I'll, I'm going to I'm going to get into it. I'll, I've got to get the vibe back because you know it's like the rock industry back then. It was uh, it was a school of hard knocks. You know, we were doing five, sometimes seven nights a week on the road, just gigging, and it was pretty hard because I was a very young father and. Uh, you know, I was always away, and so we kind of, you know, crisscrossed the country, and um, yeah, so went to America, I think we did for a little while, and uh, um, things were looking fantastic until the grunge kind of hit us, so anyway, I've got this new record, I thought, well, we can't make one real quick, and it, you know, you've got to get the finances to make a decent album, so slowly chipped away at it, and around about uh, after 2000, and um what we got is the new album, Resurrection, which was released originally as a... Well, we, we put it out there as a um, like a, a, a demo, production demo, promo demo, and we gave it to a label that wanted to hear it, and they ended up taking it really? <laughs> without our permission and stuck it out there. And I won't mention the label. It was a, uh, it was a Sydney label, and uh, we 
spent the next three years getting it pulled down because it was on porn sites. Uh, there was 15,000 downloads on a porn site of a song, and yet this label said, oh, we didn't make much money out of that. But um, So it was like, oh, here we go again. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, music industry. So we, we had to pull it and not do anything with it, and uh, all our artwork and everything, we had to redo it. And um, what I did is decided to remix, redo some guitars, because it was a bit light on for me. And uh, we went into the studio that I built, which is an uh, amazing studio downstairs. It's a, got an old Neve console, um, very similar to the one that Dave Grohl used on that movie. Um, Sonic yeah, Dave Grohl movie. Mm-hmm. What was that? What's that one? He you mean Sonic Highways, yeah? Sonic Highway, yeah, it's a Neve. Mm-hmm. So I restored a Neve. It took another two years. <laughs> mm-hmm. So then we finally got down to it with Peter Blyton uh, and myself. Pete's been a producer around for many years in Sydney. And, um, yeah, we started working on it and finished it. Did the artwork again with a gentleman from Mexico City called Hector Panita, who's a surrealist artist. And um, he was so, he was in the, it's great because he was into B.B. Steele and the second album um, way back in Mexico. And uh, he he just said, I'd love to, you know, I've been a fan forever. So he did all the in, inlays and we did a, a really, it's a really great cover. You've seen the cover, you would have. You know, I have, I have. Who's couple. the model on the front? Well, that's actually a Mexican woman. Right. I don't know her name, but... Uh, yeah, it's pretty hot. It's, uh, <laughs> I didn't know where to go with that. I thought everyone says tits and bums sell, so I thought, oh, I'll stick a bum on the front of the gun. Ah, <laughs> 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 oh, you got to do crazy things sometimes. But um, yeah, so we we've done we've done a few shows. We had a great lineup with a couple of Sydney guys, um, and gigs are few and far between, and you know uh, that kind of lost the vibe and uh, went their ways, which was great. And they're still great guys, still great friends, and. Uh, but I've got another lineup here, which is absolutely smoking, absolutely on fire. I've got a Steve Williams on guitar, one of the guitarists. You know Steve Williams? Yeah, the he, name rings He's about, played man. with John Lord. He's played with... Uh, he actually, he was a, in a big pop band in Australia way back in the late 80s and uh, called Wai Wai Nee. Oh, right, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And he's actually a really hot, smoking uh, rock player, very... Mm. Hendrix influenced. Um, he's got a really heavy uh, right hand, you know, and a left hand, great rhythm hand. But his his lead playing is just very strong, very animal. And um, so I got him, and I got a, a young dude who looks like Kurt Cobain, which makes me laugh every time I look at him. But he's a he's a cool surfy dude, plays rock really hard, just influenced by guys like Blackmore and Page. And, uh, you know, he's a youngish guy. You know, he's in his uh, late 20s, but just just add new blood. Great okay, drummer. So let's, uh, got... let's hear a song, eh? I think it's probably... Uh, do you want to pick a song off uh, Resurrection, which you you refer to as the third album, but you're including Boss as well, aren't you? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, I am. I, I do it because the, the name changed. We had to change it right, right in the turn of uh, 90, uh, mm. 89 about that time. A record company said, look, um, we're getting a bit of uh, a few complaints about Boss, the effects pedal people, Boss Apparel, from Amer- all from America. Uh, boss, um, people are thinking you're the backup band for Bruce Springsteen. And our manager at the time, uh, which was Richard Wilkins, uh, 
back in the boss days, he when people would say, "Oh, is that Bruce's band?" and he'd say, "Yeah." And like I said before, we were we were getting five and ten grand guarantees <laughs> as eighteen year olds. Going, "What? How is he doing this?" Because you know most bands were getting two hundred bucks. Yeah, yeah. And it's because we'd rock up to a venue, like especially we're talking regionals, mm. and they go, "Oh, where, where's the boss?" And where where that? And they'd look at us cross-eyed and uh, they go, no, no, it was Bruce. I said, no, no, Bruce. And now we got it. We said, no, no, Bruce isn't with us. We're the backup band. <laughs> <laughs> so it got a bit embarrassing, you know. So we just basically, uh, it was really spinal tap, total spinal tap. You know, it was like they put on a big spread for us. And when they realized we're not them, it was like, we've just put on this big spread for the boss and he's not here, you know. <laughs> <laughs> which song, which song make a new album, mate? Which songs should we play? Give them the opening track. Waiting, waiting for you.
Hi, it's Craig from BB Steel. Great to be on White Lion Fever with Steve Mascord. Hope to see you out in the gig soon. So, welcome back to White Lion Fever, episode 70. Uh, sorry, it's been a, a while coming. We haven't done an episode since the nines. Uh, before I introduce our guest for the talking part of the program, we've got to mention a WLF podcast on Twitter and also White Lion Fever on Facebook. And please come and join whitelinefever.ning.com. And we are here at Headingley. I'm here with uh, Phil Kaplan from uh, 4020. Um, and we're waiting for uh, Leeds play Huddersfield. But we're going to talk about the World Club Series. How are you, Phil? I'm fine. Thank you for asking. It's a pleasure to be on. <laughs> now, um, we're back to sort of domestic competition now. Uh, what did you think of the World Club uh, Series? I loved it. I mean, I think a phrase that I used, having been involved in some of the build-up and going to the matches, was rugby league grew up in this country for that week. I think that we were an adult sport. We were featured in magazines. There were film premieres. There were dinners. Uh, it felt as though we were hitting avenues that rugby league in this country doesn't normally get to. Uh, and the whole idea in the, the grounds are going to be full to watch players that we don't see regularly just caught the imagination. And yeah, it might have taken 120 years, but we, we felt a little bit more like a big sport. Now, uh, because of the ambient noise, I'm going to flip this around and hope it doesn't. Uh, they say in the business it doesn't pop. There's not a lot of distortion. So apologies, listeners, if uh, there is. But, but um, I mean, I, sp- I suppose at the start of the week, it d- I had doubts that it was going to break out of the normal sort of uh, uh, the normal sort of sphere of rugby league coverage. But you feel it did by the end of the week. I think a lot of that was down to Russell Crowe. We shouldn't underestimate the influence of building a lot of the media around him had in this country and you know taglines like he preferred Langtree Park to the Oscars just got the national coverage that we don't normally get. To to give you an example the um, BBC National News late on Sunday night after Souths had beat St Helens had a rugby league feature well that would never have happened but the lead into it was where Russell Crowe had been that night and there was clippers of him doing interviews on the pitch so Yes, um, we got away with whatever the results may have been with the fact that we actually got a profile for the sport and yeah, that was partly down to that he had a film to sell but he went on a programme called The Last Leg uh, with Adam Hills and got them to come to the matches so they tweeted about it and again I just think it was a... It was something that we don't normally see over here. Rugby league was up the sporting agenda when it's been slipping down. Does the gulf in the salary caps mean that there's a limited time span for the, the concept as it is now? I'm not sure. I, I think what, what I would say from watching these teams regularly over here is that all of the English teams were a little bit down on the best we've seen in Super League. So Warrington were maybe 5% down. There were a couple of uncharacteristic errors by players you wouldn't normally expect. The most obvious one being John Monaghan would have scored that try every week in Super League. But, you know, maybe he was in awe of the covering defence coming over and dropped it. But uncharacteristic. Wigan were scrappers on, on Saturday night they, they deserve enormous credit for staying in the game for so long but they didn't ever look like they were going to win it they were just a little bit down from what we see in Super League week to week and, and Saints again three times in the first half they were prevented from putting the ball down over the line I think in Super League they'd have scored most if not all of those tries those little margins where the Super League teams weren't quite up to it meant that we didn't see the very best of them but I'd, I'd take you back to a match at Headingley in 2012 when 
Leeds played Manly and Leeds were at the top of their game and, and they beat Manly so I, I don't think we can read too much into that I think the salary cap is an issue but it wasn't the reason why the teams lost this weekend In 10 or 20 or 30 years uh, God willing we're both still around will we see a fully integrated competition between the, between the two leagues? It's an interesting concept and I think the good thing is we're talking about it I mean, it, it, I think you started it many many years ago about you know, maybe having a, a, a team based in Perth of all British players then that was taken on and maybe there should be a team that's based in England playing in an NRL then we had Russell Crowe saying it should be the top four from each division playing in a separate competition I think now you, you again are among the people that propose the idea of maybe an integrated competition why not think about it I mean the thing that's always struck me is that we've only got about 800 players that are paid by the sport on a full time basis in both hemispheres we need to expand that we'll do that by taking the sport to new markets and this may be a product to do that you could imagine that this world club series or championship or whatever it's going to be called in the future it could become a bit of a travelling circus and that could get more and more people in more and more countries involved in, in wanting to be part of the sport What about in the immediate future Phil what do you, what do you see the same again next year or do you, have you got any whispers that uh, it'll be fine tuned in any way I think it'll still be over here I think that's for certain I'm pretty sure it'll be three clubs and the the idea would be to move to four as soon as possible. I think the other thing that uh, perhaps the, the organisers are looking to do is maybe move in the uh, direction where we can bring Catalan in to represent France, we can bring the Warriors in to represent New Zealand. You've then got four-nation competition. That suddenly has even more broadcast and sponsor appeal. But the key thing for me that I learnt this week was Shane Richardson's involvement. Because I think we've got somebody who will even mean more in this country than he will in the NRL. We've got an expansionist and somebody who can tap into what's going on, particularly at Media City in Salford with the likes of Blake Solly and Mark Foster. And I think we've got somebody who's going to push the British game to be more and more involved in this type of competition. OK, Gold Coast and uh, the uh, cocaine scandal. How, do, how does it look from this distance to you? It doesn't look great, um, but then it doesn't come as a huge surprise. Um, I think I can't remember who it was that said that sport is a reflection of society, so you'd be foolish to think that we were immune from that kind of thing. I guess it's how the game handles it. The only thing I can compare it to in in recent times over here was the Ben Flower punch in the grand final I'm not comparing like with like but that was an incident that could have been incredibly damaging for the sport over here it was something that all the media focused on that there wasn't anyone that didn't carry a story about it but actually the way the sport handled it and the way the two clubs came together to talk about the welfare of the players involved we actually emerged with more credit than the incident itself so I guess it's early days to, to see who is involved where, where it all ends and how it's going to be dealt with. It is, and you know, there was a big danger uh, with the original Asada uh, um, uh, issue of either understating or overstating it when we actually don't know anything. I mean, uh, the, the, um, the legal representative for the players who've been charged so far says that they were phone tapped and they were talking about trafficking to themselves, supplying themselves, and they deny doing that. So, um, you know, the suggestion is how do you get a conviction from someone saying they're going to take drugs. I mean, that is not indictable. So they're going to need a lot more evidence than that. Um, I think it's really interesting working in the media, and I'm a defender of, uh, of the media in almost every turn, or at least I think the media do a poor job. We do a poor job as an industry of explaining ourselves. We're, we're, we're happy to hold everyone else to account, and we're, we're not happy to hold ourselves to account sometimes. But 
It's an interesting story. The media is staking out a former Broncos great, and that becomes a story. The media is staking him out. We can't name who he is, but if no charges are laid and nothing happens, then we're just going to, we're going to end up with this stain anyway. People will guess who it is. You know, I don't know how many people you'll describe who still live in Brisbane who are former Broncos greats. It's not a huge um, list. So it, that's kind of... I'm a little bit dubious about the whole process here. We go and wait outside his house, then we report we're waiting outside his house. Yep. <laughs> it becomes self-perpetuating. I think yeah, the, yeah. the other thing um, is obviously social networking these days, that too often names are revealed on something like Twitter or all the various other Facebook, Instagram, and the danger is that that isn't as controllable or regulatable as the media is. So I think, you know, yes, we want a fourth estate, we want to, to challenge authority. That That's the reason why you go into this kind of thing in the first place. But I think you do acknowledge the fact that there are things like libel and slander laws, but there aren't out there on social networking. You've got to be very, very careful. Speaking about Australia and recreational drugs, we've got an in excess song in the background. But on that note, uh, thanks for joining us, Phil. It's a pleasure. I'm, I don't know anything about music compared to you, but the very first time I was in Brisbane, I was taken to an in excess concert <laughs> in 1985 and absolutely loved it. Awesome. Yeah, I remember where I was when uh, poor old uh, Michael died. Okay, uh, a couple more housekeeping things. Uh, Firstly, go to uh, iTunes and please make a comment, even a bad comment. Any comment is good. Uh, and secondly, uh, if you go to wildlifeever.ning.com, uh, there's a little button that says donate. It's not free to do a podcast. It's free to talk into your phone, but it's not free to upload it. It's not free to host it. Uh, so um, any help there would be uh, appreciated. And also, if you're doing any shopping, uh, hit the Amazon button and we get a little kickback and you don't pay any more. Here's some music, uh, some great new music. I reckon early favourite for album of the year. Uh, it's Sweet and Lynch uh, from their album Only to Rise. And the song's called Dying Rose. And we'll be back with more rock interviews after that.
Hey, this is Jizzy Pearl here, hanging with Steve, and you're listening to White Line Fever. Okay, so welcome back to the program, and our next guest is Cormac Neeson from The Answer, and he is in... Where are you, Cormac? Where are you? I am in sunny Belfast, man. All right. And how is the weather? It's pretty shitty. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's kind of that time of the year, you know, where you stood at this stage. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, tell me, um, the, the album Raise a Little Hell, is it right, uh, which is out in a couple of weeks, you went to Madrid? Was that just for the weather, to get away from the shitty weather? Or? <laughs> <laughs> that was part of the reason, yeah. Um, but the main reason was that our our producer had just recently renovated his great-grandmother's home Right. And turned it into uh, into a residential studio up in the mountains. It was kind of in a in a little village just north of Madrid. Um, so he he opened this great new studio and and kind of held on to a lot of the old the old architecture. So it was baby, you know. And we oh. moved in. We lived there, slept there, at there, drank there. Most importantly, made music there. But um, <laughs> on top of all that, there was like a the village annual fiesta. Yeah. Was just kicking off whenever we arrived, which meant bull runs in the morning, <laughs> afternoon drinking, bull fights in the evening, and then lots more drinking. Um, <laughs> just the whole town just kicked off. Like I'm talking St. Patrick's Day drunk every day for a week. How did you get um, to work done? Well, we, what we would do is we we'd head out in the morning, we'd watch the bull run. Then we'd head back into the studio and work for 12 hours while the rest of the town just got steaming drunk. <laughs> and then we'd go out and have a couple of beers in the evening and just laugh at the, the state some people had got themselves into. <laughs> um, as I say, I'm a big St. Patrick's Day just every day for a week. It was fantastic. It just all, just all fed. You know, the whole, the whole record experience, it was, it was a lot of fun. And that whole, that whole kind of bull running festival just fed into the, end of the work that we were doing. Was anyone connected to the recording or the band tempted to do the bull run? Or? Um, our producer did it most mornings, actually. Oh, he's, really? he's, a, he's a Spanish man as you would ever meet. <laughs> uh, so, so he would do it, and, uh, and we would kind of watch. Uh, I did it one morning, actually. I, I just, I'd, watched, I'd watched Will do it on a number of occasions, and, and it got to the point where I was like, right, I'm doing this, you know. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So um, I, I did it. It was pretty, pretty crazy experience, actually. Um, but as I say, it was all part of that the party atmosphere in, in the town at the time. Did you? Uh, I mean, I'm fascinated. Did did do you, does a bull come close to you? What's the adrenaline like? Is it actually so, for most people? So what happens is they'll they'll have I think it's five or six bulls um, ready to go on the release one at a time. And they run like um <clears throat> can't remember what the name is for it, but it's like um like bullocks maybe, you know, whatever it is, the bull itself are attracted to these animals. Right. And they'll run these animals in front of the bull as, as kinda bait almost, you know, just to get the, the bull's blood pumping. Um and then he'll get let out of his, his trailer and just run at 90 mile an hour through the streets with right. like hundreds of crazy Spanish people running away from it, as you would imagine. Um, but it's kind of down to you how close you wanna, you wanna uh, how close your starting distance is gonna be. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's one of those 
one of those situations where if you're feeling brave, you can really, you know, get quite close to the bow, or alternatively, you can you can give yourself a bit of space. You know, I mean, I generally played it safe. I didn't want to, to <laughs> didn't want to injure myself mid recording process. I would have been a first. <laughs> I, I was going to ask this question later, but it, it seems particularly relevant. To to what extent does a is a record um, does it sound a product of the place where it was recorded? I mean, and and does this is this is this a product of where it was recorded? Well, I think it sounds like we're having a really good time in there, um, which which is absolutely the truth. You know, as I say, the whole party atmosphere fed into the recording process, mm. and I think it, I think it really it was necessary for this record because it's essentially a good time rock and roll album. Um, so you know, you can't get in there and record this vibrant music if you're not enjoying yourself. But thankfully, we had a great time. Now, I did say we we're going to play a couple of songs. Um, can you remember any songs that were, were recorded or finished or started the day after you ran with the Bulls? Maybe we should start with that. Uh, long as the Renegades, Kenna hits the nail on the head. I Power 
Hey folks, this is Cormac Neeson here from The Answer. Check out our new record, Raise a Little Hell. You're listening to White Lane Fever. Welcome back to the program, and it's uh, Northern Ireland week uh, on White Lane Fever because we had Cormac Neeson on earlier in the program from uh, The Answer, and now we've got Ricky Warwick. How are you, Ricky? I'm doing very good. I'm, I'm glad to see you, the Cormac, on the show. He's a, he's a, he's a mate of mine. He's a good lad. Awesome. But you're not in Northern Ireland now. You're, you're in the States, aren't you? Uh, yeah, I've been, I live in Los Angeles now. Yeah, sold my soul for the sun. Yeah, exactly, because he was whinging about the weather. Um, <laughs> the Killer Instinct. Uh, um, I think the, we did actually uh, speak to you in uh, Nottingham about uh, 18 months ago backstage, and I think I, at, that, at that point, Joe Elliott was... This is the, the new album for Black Star Riders, by the way. At that point, Joe Elliott was going to be producing it. I mean, how far along were you when he when he pulled out? Um, you know, we... we we were we were fairly well into it. I mean, we'd started writing. We hadn't really um, um, done any record. We didn't do any recording with Joe, Damon, and I, and we were kind of working on the songs. Um, but he called us about May of last year, and just you know, Def Leppard ended up doing the Kiss tour in the states, and they started writing for a new Def Leppard album, which had come together a lot quicker than than they they imagined. And what looked like was going to be a quiet year for Joe turning there a really, really busy year. And, you know, I've known Joe's a great friend of mine. He just said, look, I can't, I can't give you the guys the time and, and the, and the, to, 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 to get involved in your album and do the justice that you guys deserve. And he said, uh, um, I don't want to let you down. So, you know, that's the reason he, uh, he pulled out of the album. It was really disappointing, um, you know, because he's a great guy and he's a friend, but also he's, He's got a great studio. He's got a you know wealth of knowledge, and I think it'd have been a lot of fun to work with him. But you know, in all honesty, it turned out it, it couldn't have turned out better in the end, if this truth be known, because we ended up working with the great Nick Rasklinich. You know. Yeah, yeah, and that Kiss tour did it also cost you your bass player because Dead Daisies were on that tour too, weren't they? <laughs> uh, no comment. Um, <laughs> um, listen, you know, Marco Mendoza is a great bass player, and. Um, he, he, Mark was the kind of guy that's got a lot of things on the go um, at one time. Uh, with Black Star Riders, obviously, we were starting to tour more and more, the success of the first album, and we needed more of a commitment, and Marco just wasn't prepared, I think, to give us the commitment that, 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 he, that we wanted, and he felt that he could. And he was pretty gracious. He said, look, guys, you know, we finished this, we were on tour in the States, we finished this U.S. run, um, you know, I'm, I'm going I'm, I'm gonna to leave the band, and he gave us plenty of time to find a replacement. Again, every cloud is silver lining because you know we got the incredible Robbie Crane in the band now, who's just fantastic. So I wish Marco all the best, you know. So Ricky, if you had have gone to the studio with Joe, oh, it's a hard question, it's theoretical, I know, but do you think the record would have sounded a lot different? Yeah, I think it would have. Um, um, you know, I still think we would have made a great record. Um, you know, Joe's I've recorded with Joe before my solo records, and obviously, you know, I've heard the leopard stuff that he's done in the studio. Um, yeah, it would have had a different sound. Um, I think the songs may have been different as well. One of the great things about working with Nick Raskolinich was he gets very, very involved in the pre-production and the arrangements. Uh, you know, we did a full week, full on of pre-production before we even recorded a note. Mm. And, and I think it would have, you know. I still think we'd have made a great album with Joe, but I think it would have been different, yeah. Yeah, it, I, I mean, it continues on from the first record, which... And I don't think you take this as an insult that it sounds like a Thin Lizzy record. It's a compliment, and it's the same. Sure. It, it continues in the same vibe in a really positive way. Do you? I'm sure other people ask this. Do you go back and listen to Thin Lizzy records when you're in the studio? No. Right. 
No, I mean, I listen to Thin Lizzy. I, I grew up listening to Thin Lizzy. Thin Lizzy are you know, one of my favorite bands of all time. Uh, you know, obviously being Irish, they were just, they just were, and they're such a great band. Phil Lynott to me is one of the, probably the best frontman in Irish rock and roll, in my opinion. Um, I always listened to Lizzy. Even when I was in Thin Lizzy, I would listen to Lizzy. <laughs> Um, it's uh, and th- there's the answer to your question. It's part of who we are. I mean, you got Scott Gorham, who's an integral part of that Thin Lizzy sound, that guitar sound that that you know you heard in all those great classic Lizzy tracks with Scott and Rob or Gary Moore. You know, Scott was an integral part of that. That's who he is. Scott has got that style. So when we've got Scott in the band, so we're going to have that. Plus Damon Johnson and myself. You know, when in Thin Lizzy for for I was there for four years. Damon was there for three years. And part of that's ingrained in who we are and that style. And we're certainly, it's the spirit of Thin Lizzy that we want to retain while forging ahead and getting our own identity as well. I think we've, we've managed to you know, keep one foot on either side of, of that line, you know. Okay, we'll be back speaking to you in the next program, but for the, from the point of view of the listeners. So can we have a, um, a song to finish this show uh, and to finish the first segment of our interview? What, what would you like us to play? You want a Black Star Riders song? Well, I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, your, your, so call, your call. Yeah, no, that'll be great to have a Black Star Riders song off the new album. How about uh, the track Soldier's Town? There's a stranger on the road tonight on the way to Soldier's Town. A stranger with his coat pulled tight, his collar buttoned down. A stranger every sinner knows a seasoned man of war. Marching to the fires of hell, skyed by the king on Soldier's Town, it's written on the moon They'll pull an aisle, they shut us down They sing fearful of his tune He'll sing a song of sixpence Break his fist upon a door They know the score in Soldier's Town He's done it here before There is no choice, no compromise Give up one of your kin To save the other children To save your bone skin Tonight's the night you must decide Which souls they'll go The devil rides in Soldier's Town His boots cut through the snow
Try to rhyme anymore. <laughs> Michael Monroe here for White Line Fever, and you get a chance. Come and check us out live. We're gonna rock your socks off and whatever, rock like fuck. That's what I say. Okay, <laughs> come on down and rock on. 